Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Cassie. As usual, I'm Cassie, your host for the show. Today, I thought we would kind of not be specific, but in a way be very technical. What do I mean? Today, we're going to talk about words and how words can impact and affect what we study, how we study, what conclusions we draw from the study that we do. One of the things that historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, everyone has to deal with is the use of words. We have to choose the right words to convey the thoughts in our heads properly to someone else. We have to understand the words conveyed to us by someone in an attempt to understand exactly what their thoughts were so that we're, as the saying goes, all on the same page. Unfortunately, when we have language barriers, we can have a problem with that. When we have cultural barriers, even within the same, quote, language family or spoken language, we can have barriers to that. When we have time differences, we can also have barriers to that. And we're going to discuss some of that today in this episode. One of the primary justifications that historians and archaeologists and anthropologists will use when they decide whether a document is worthy of being a source to support or refute a theory or a hypothesis or an idea is how valid the document is. What makes a document valid? Well, it should be its authenticity. Is it an authentic document? In other words, is this document actually written either A, by the person that is either claiming authorship or the claimed author or position, if it's supposedly a priestly scribe or whatever. Is there a way to prove that beyond any doubt? Secondly, validity. Is this an honest or truthful document? In other words, is this a document that was written for the purpose of recording information, conveying information, preserving information in a truthful manner, as opposed to it being a wish list or literary adventure or something else. Also, is what's stated in the document useful? Does it agree with other information, evidence, support, or does it disagree? Why or why not? On top of all these challenges when validating a document, one of the things that has to be also looked at, is this actually the original document? Is it a reproduction or a copy of the document? When was that document copied or reproduced if it is. You know, today we send an email and we might send that email, that same email to 20 different people. One is the actual original and the other 19 are electronic digital copies of the same electronic digital transcription. But all of them having originated with us are all valid, truthful documents or copies of the same document. So is the document we're looking at, if it's a copy, is it something comparable to that where the scribe had to have, say, a copy of a treaty or correspondence for three or four individuals? Are they all exactly the same? Is this a secondhand copy or a secondhand reproduction where someone else has made the equivalency of a Xerox copy of the original letter? If it is, 
How accurate is it? Is it truly a Xerox copy or is it a handwritten copy that may or may not be transcribed precisely, exactly? Maybe it's a translated copy into a different language. If so, was it done by someone who was actually fluent in both languages and cultures? Because there is a huge difference in being fluent in a language and also knowing the culture of the people that speak that language. A prime example is in what can be referred to as our idiom or our proverbs or our sayings. In a prime example, in English, if you think someone is messing with you in a joking, teasing, white lie manner, you might say to the person, stop pulling my leg. Now, they are not literally grabbing a hold of your leg and yanking on it. However, in Spanish, that's exactly if you translated word for word instead of translating the meaning into their equivalent phrase, that's exactly what a Spanish speaker would think. To convey the same message, they ask if you're pulling their hair. And to bring that back into English, an English speaker would literally think someone was yanking your hair instead of pulling your leg. So there does have to be an understanding of whether or not a translator can recognize those and whether or not they stick to translating word for word and leave the interpreting to the reader or whether or not they include interpretation in order to ensure that the original thought, message, idea is conveyed in a way that can be understood in the new language. And when that occurs thousands and thousands of years prior to us, it's a little more challenging to actually know if that is how it happened. If there was a word-for-word transcription, translation, or an idea, a whole total idea concept interpretation into a new language. And again, as I said, you don't even necessarily have to go language to language. British English has its own slang terms that would not always be understood by American English speakers and vice versa. The same goes for either British English speakers or American English speakers when compared to Australia. English speakers, yet they're all English speakers. On top of that, you also have a time difference to deal with. If you, even today, if you find an original document, contemporary, written in an ancient language that, you know, is understood, you have to be careful about interpreting that using today's language and whether or not it would be understood in even a hundred years by people of your own language. A good example of this that I use when I bring up these concepts and ideas and try to encourage people to think past a word. Don't 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 get hung up on a word. Don't automatically assume a document or a story or a belief isn't valid because you don't like the words that have been used. And I think historians and archaeologists and anthropologists are probably some of the most guilty of this misunderstanding of, of not being able to see past words. But a prime example that I use, as I said, is to give the person that I'm talking to a fake title. And 
ask them what the title would mean if it were the title of a story in 1900 as opposed to the title of a story in 2000. And the title of the story is this, The Gay Life of Johnny. Now, a person in 1900 seeing the title of a story would assume that it's a story of a boy named John who has a happy life. He's no different than anyone else. He, well, maybe he is different because he has this gay happy life. In 1900, the word gay means happy. In 2000, the story would imply that it is the man's life as a gay man or as a homosexual man, whichever word you prefer, but it has a completely, totally different meaning. He may or may not have, quote, a happy life, but someone in 2000 seeing that title is not going to assume that it has anything to do with happiness, but that it has everything to do with his sexual orientation. The person a hundred years ago would not first think that it has anything to do with the man's sexual orientation, that it has everything to do with the happiness of his life as a whole. And that's only a hundred year difference in the same country speaking exactly the same language. And yet we think we can be experts about documents that have been translated into three or four or five languages before they ever get to our own about what they mean and about how accurate they are. And heaven forbid if we actually throw some name of some person in history that we've given some status, reputation, credit to. Like these people could never make a mistake or these people knew everything about everything that they wrote about. A lot of things that Herodotus wrote about are very accurate. Some of them still exist today or we have enough supporting evidence that we can say he got this right. Other things, not so much. Yet we still give him credit for everything that he wrote. And we still give him credit as someone who is valid, respected, and can be cited regardless of whether what you're citing is an event that he got right. He wasn't as well-traveled as we're led to believe. He did not go to every corner of the known world and write. Did he travel? Yes, he did, but not everywhere. He wrote about the Atlas Mountains. He never went there. People use him to justify Atlantis being in the western Sahara Desert. He never went there. He was recording stories that he heard or that he read from places and people that he considered to be valid and accurate. And that's not knocking him. At some point, we do have to have trust. We do have to have faith. We do have to give the benefit of the doubt to where we're getting our information from. And that's with everything. You know, at some point, you have to trust other people or you'll never have friends. You have to trust other people or you'll never have an intimate relationship. You have to trust companies or you'll never be able to buy anything. Trust goes a long way, but trust should not go on the way. And it's perfectly acceptable to trust someone, in this case Herodotus, as an original source and to use his stories, his words, his place names, his dates, people names, his version of events to point you in the right direction or to point you in a direction to look for supporting and corroborating evidence. The problem that arises is when you put a lot of credibility in someone. 
then you have a tendency when you find another document or any evidence that calls that original source into question, it's human nature to instinctively assume that the new evidence is false. And that's wrong. A prime example is Plato. People give Plato an immense amount of credit right up until the stories about Atlantis. And then, oh, suddenly he's a fiction writer just making things up to prove a point. Yet people truly haven't searched, and when I say people, I don't, I'm not talking about independent researchers right now, but academics and scholars haven't truly researched it to see if there are supporting documents that corroborate Plato's story, because in their head, it's just too fantastic of a tell. They thought the same thing of Homer. The Trojan Wars were just too fantastic of a tell, so they weren't true. Mm, now we have Troy. Kind of makes you think maybe Homer was right, at least in part, sure, stories can grow. The typical fish tell is one. The little minnow becomes, you know, Moby Dick by the time that the tell has been told a few dozen, hundred times. But the basis of the story is still true. The man still caught a fish, or the man was still a fisherman. So just because his original feat might have been merely catching a hundred-pound selfish, and the story morphs into a thousand-pound well, in and of itself doesn't make the story totally dismissible. It means that you use the story to find what's right and what's wrong. And you should never base everything, whether you're saying it did or didn't happen, it is or isn't accurate, the person did or didn't exist. You never base everything on merely one source of evidence. You can't even base everything on one source of evidence if supposedly it's someone claiming to be the person standing in front of you telling a story. You still should look for other evidence from a scholarly, scientific point of view. One of the things that confuses a lot of people when, as students that really aren't focused on history or anthropology, and sometimes they don't even realize that they are being given confusing or inaccurate information. Place names. Place names change over time. One of the reasons that they change is language issue. The first people that settled a town speak one language. They settle their town, they start making pretty pottery or baking the best bread or they're next to a obsidian deposit or a gold deposit or something else. And someone is going to come along and want whatever this community has, and they'll take it. And chances are that they speak a new language, so they will translate the place into their language. And they may or may not keep the original name as a direct translation, or they might decide to change it into something totally different. They may not keep it as city on the hill. They may change it to Johnstown. So a hundred years later, 500 years later, a thousand years later, when stories are told of Hilltown or Johnstown, it can be confusing to know. Or heaven forbid, we do something like we talk about the great pottery in Johnstown. 
while the Great Pottery wasn't technically in Johnstown, the Great Pottery was in Hilltown that was conquered by King John, becoming Johnstown. But he slaughtered everyone, so no more pretty pottery. So why give Johnstown credit for being the site of the prettiest pottery in the region when it isn't because he killed everyone? In addition, you might have cities that have to move and relocate. You have people that have to move and relocate due to natural disasters, due to King John's invading, due to any number of reasons. And one of the things that people do when they migrate is they take not just their customs and their language with them, they take their place names with them as well. That's very common to see from Europe, or quote, the old world, into the new world. There's the famous London in England. There's also a London in Ontario, Canada. And that's just, you know, one example. And even within a country, the United States is a prime example. You have lots of states that have names of towns that are the same as other states. There's a Denver, North Carolina, and a Denver, Colorado. There's a Dallas, North Carolina, and a Dallas, Texas. And it goes on and on. You can find that all through. So when you come across documents that say that things happened in a specific place, you have to do your best to determine which place they were referring to. One of the things that people pose in an argument regarding the validity, authenticity, accuracy of the New Testament Gospels regarding stories of Jesus is the fact that most people today who identify as being Christians, one of the terms that are titles that they will use for Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. There's a little bit of a problem. There is no accurate historical corroboration that the town of Nazareth, which does exist today, existed in his time. There were settlements around the Sea of Galilee, just not Nazareth. It developed later. Does that piece in and of itself negate everything else? No, but it should provide you with a clear understanding of the things that can happen. One of the things that I've discussed before is that actually a lot of biblical place names have changed over time. And even in the biblical greater world, so to speak, you have two or three places that have the same place name contemporaneously. There was not just one Ur in the Middle East, and the two Urs are geographically opposite ends of the Fertile Crescent, one down near the Persian Gulf that everyone knows about because that's currently considered to be the one that all the stories are told about. There's another Ur in the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. There seems to be substantial documentation that once scholars and clerics started looking for the historic component of the Bible, that they gave more validity to the northern Ur than the southern Ur. These are just some examples of how words can really impact what we think we know or what we say we know. A more common one is when details or titles are used in documents that modern academics consider to be impossible or unreasonable. It's not truly our place to make those kind of judgments about a people that we do not know directly, about a culture that we 
did not experience and were not part of ourselves. Just because the translations of stories we have today call individuals in the past gods or demigods or demigod heroes does not mean that those individuals didn't exist, does not mean that those individuals didn't do the things that those stories say they did. So when we automatically dismiss something because, oh, there's no such thing as a demigod. There's no such thing as a supernatural hero. You're being very disrespectful of the original culture and the original people. Oral tradition and oral histories, in some respects, are actually incredibly more accurate than written records. We can say, oh, well, there have been studies today that show that that's not true. Well, that's wrong. Any studies today will prove that modern man is not as accurate with oral traditions, and that's because our brains have changed. Oral tradition and oral memory require different parts of the brain being developed. And once we learned to write, and we started depending on writing for keeping those stories and those traditions and those rituals and those ceremonies, we stopped developing that part of our brain that maintained our oral histories. And we developed other parts of our brains that were needed to maintain written history. So we can't equate one with the other. We have to be open-minded. We have to be accepting. We have to be understanding. We have to be willing to accept our ancestors as our equals, not as our inferiors, and give them the respect due them. If we do that, it's actually much easier to keep your curiosity dusted off, which I always encourage you to do. And it gives us a whole new world of the past to explore and enjoy and love. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, this is Cassie. Have a great day.